You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. Patrick, welcome to the Big Trade series. I've always wanted to discuss about the Roman Empire, discuss about that a lot on the podcast, and it's great to just get additional insight from you. Maybe you could share a little bit about yourself and what you're doing in terms of your coverage for the Roman Empire right now. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Um, so I'm host. I'm doing a podcast called The Fall of Rome. Um, my background is in academic history. I focused on the period between about uh, 350 and 650. So what you what you would call late antiquity, kind of the later stages of the Roman Empire. But um, but I've taught the earlier stuff as well. Um, so this has been stuff that I've worked on professionally for a very long time. And, uh, and now I'm not in academia anymore. I'm actually a sports writer in my day job, but I do this on the side and I'm trying to bring to a popular audience, uh, the kinds of stuff that normally gets, uh, gets, uh, ghettoized in academia. That's fantastic. So like prior to this, um, uh, podcast, we had discussed preliminary about, um, the Republic and the empire. Could you provide some clear distinction on what the difference is of the Republic and the Empire. I've had many guests come on to the podcast and we talked about democracy and what a republic is. And I think that a lot of the audience still isn't clear on that. And they're not really clear on how that relates to an empire and that expansion that an empire makes. What's your definition of, of all of these um, definitions? Well, so that's a that's a good question. It's an interesting question. So the Romans, while they were under a, a system of government that we call a republic, it was fundamentally a mixed constitution. So um, it, it received a lot of praise in the ancient world, especially from the Greeks, because they thought that it mixed the best aspects of democracy, oligarchy, and monarchy. Those were the three main types of government and kind of political thought in the ancient world. Um, and so you had the monarchical aspects with elected consuls who who ran things for who ran things for a year at a time. Um, there were two of them. Then you had the oligarchic aspects with the Senate, uh, which was a body made up of elected officials and former elected officials um, who who tended to come from the the absolute elite of society. And then you had the democratic aspect because they these officials were elected. Now the upper classes had more uh, political sway, but there, but still votes counted. Uh, so so that was the republic as a political system. The empire bit is a little bit separate from that. While a republic, Rome had become a state that conquered large stretches of the Mediterranean, from North Africa to Spain to, to Gaul uh, to the east. Uh, so the, so it was an empire before it, before the republic fell away. The republic fell away. It was replaced by what was effectively a monarchy uh, with, uh, with Augustus uh, starting in 27 BC. So we have a period of time. I think we're in agreement that Pax Roma was the height, the zenith of the empire. And that's during the same period in which we're seeing the republic transition to the empire. And we... We kind of are in agreement from the perspective that during that period of time, there were elements of the Republic that um, fostered and developed the height of the empire. Could you highlight what were the catalysts that created this unique period of time? 
So the Pax Romana is interesting. The Pax Romana is generally agreed to begin basically when Augustus takes over. So as the as the institutions of the Republic are slipping into something more autocratic and monarchical, um, the peace that went along with that creates the, the circumstances that allowed for tremendous economic growth, uh, unbelievable economic growth. So you had um, a long period of civil war, very violent, nasty civil war. A lot of people died. Uh, a lot of land was ravaged across the Mediterranean world. When, when Augustus takes over the uh like just the sheer nature of peace allowed for allowed for the reintegration of the various pieces of the mediterranean world and the roman state was a part of that because it moved tremendous amounts of goods and people from place to place it created the baseline circumstances and the infrastructure that allowed for uh, that allowed for massive economic growth that's fantastic so we discussed about a primitive and modernist approach to analyzing Rome. Mm-hmm. What What is the difference between the two and what can we understand from these two approaches or these schools of thought? Yeah, so the, yeah, so there are basically two different ways of looking kind of at the Roman economy in general. There's the primitivist fashion and then there's the modernist fashion. And I like they both have things to recommend them because, you know, the Roman economy was not the modern economy. Like it differed in basic structural ways from what we understand as the as the global 21st century economy. Um, but I think it had more in common with that than it did with a with a pre market based economy. I think that um, when where we have the evidence uh, because evidence is always going to be a problem. You know, we don't have uh, we don't have like reams of account books from from first century AD Rome uh, to tell us how people were were keeping track of debits and credits and whether they had double entry bookkeeping. Like we don't really know we don't really know that in depth. But where we do have that kind of evidence that speaks to how people were managing estates, to how they were thinking about imports and exports, to how they were thinking about economic specialization, selling for particular markets. To me, the evidence points more toward a modernist view, that they were thinking about these things in the same way that uh, modern business people are thinking about them, that they were that they understood um, regional, uh, regional specialization, they understood economies of scale. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it speaks pretty heavily that they, that they understood these concepts, even if they wouldn't have expressed them the same way that we do. And what parallels can we learn or what precedences that the Republic set in regards to like global trade? Oh, I think there are some there are some great parallels here. The the interesting thing to me about the Roman world is that it is best understood as a global world. Mm-hmm. Um, that because to me the fundamental defining characteristic of the Roman world versus what came before it and what came after it is is movement is the is the movement of large numbers of goods and people from place to place. Um, something like forty percent of people in the Roman Empire would have moved. Uh, from where they were born to where they ended up dying. That's the that's the figure that gets cited. That is a tremendous, tremendous uh, uh, scale of movement. The Roman state created the circumstances that that required the large, large the movement of large amounts of goods because of the army. You know, you had 150,000 soldiers who needed to be fed and clothed and armed every day. Uh, the so I think from that that we that is the defining characteristic. That's what sets it apart. If you don't have those things, then you don't need to move as uh, quite as much, and that's what we see when you get past the the decline and fall of the Roman state. So I think we see the uh, the the modern parallel there is are ties between places that otherwise would not have been tied together. Right, right. And in regards to as the the empire is expanding from the republic to the empire, we're starting to see like borders. Um, developed for most of the the world 
And as you, as you know, we discussed about this too, is that most borders do have like kind of like straight lines that are drawn, uh, irrespective of a geographical composition or nation composition. What, what can we learn from what the Romans were doing relative to how the world is structured and composed today post, say, World War II? Well, it's re- it's really interesting because the Romans did have did have borders. Uh, yeah. They they had man they had military posts along the borders. They invested a lot of resources in defending those borders. Um, but so but there are a couple of interesting parallels here, and I think the first one is that we shouldn't think of borders as barriers. Um, we should think of them as marking zones of interaction. So the the Roman world was not like hermetically sealed. You know, it was it was actively involved in what was happening beyond the frontier. Um, that's one of the major discoveries that we've had uh, in the last twenty or thirty years or so, as as the archaeology has gotten better, is just how closely tied together the Roman world was with kind of the barbarian world beyond. I mean, he, like there are more coins. In the in the fourth century, uh, to give you one example, there are more coins on the barbarian side of the Danube River uh, than there are in the Roman province on the other side of it. That's how tightly economically integrated the frontier zone was on on both sides. Um, but also in terms of foreign policy, if you want to look at if you want to look at that, the Romans were actively involved in managing the political scene beyond the borders. They subsidized some rulers. Uh, they fought others. They tried to co-opt others by bringing the children of barbarian chieftains into the Roman Empire and uh, raising them there and having them educated there. Um, they were actively involved in managing this world. The Romans didn't see what was happening beyond as being somehow separate from uh, from the Roman world. They had to take an active presence and an active hand. And in regards to various different um, subsequent empires, such as the um, Byzantine and the Ottoman empires. What what is it that they extracted from uh, the Roman Empire? That's an interesting question. So the Byzantine Empire is the basically the Eastern Roman Empire. It didn't fall. Um, it lasted for another thousand years after the Western Empire uh, kind of crumbled into into dust. Uh, so the the Byzantine Empire was a direct outgrowth of the late Roman state. And so when we talk about a Byzantine bureaucracy. We're talking about the late Roman bureaucracy. The state had become much more heavily bureaucratized, a much more heavy-handed central government, and that survived as one of the major legacies of the Roman Empire into the Byzantine uh, into the Byzantine state. Um, the Ottomans are an interesting are, are interesting in this regard because the Ottoman Empire grew out of the Seljuk Sultanate, and they they called themselves the Seljuk Sultanate of Rome. The, Sultan, the Sultanate of Rome. When Mehmed II took Constantinople uh, in 1453, he immediately wanted to take the other Rome too, because he wanted to be the Roman emperor. This is so. Even for later empires, the British Empire being one, um, you know, and obviously we're doing a lot of thinking about this in the in as in America in the 21st century. The Roman Empire is a series of parallels for us to think about. We are always going to compare ourselves to Rome because it's the gold standard, because it lasted for so long. Right. It accomplished so much in material terms and legal terms and cultural terms. It is always going to be there as a point of comparison and a model for us. In regards to the legal, as a segue, is that we, we understand that the foundation of America is based on, like, say, natural law, common law. But it was also the Romans that introduce an element called like political law. What what is it that we can understand about the origins of both the natural law 
and uh, political law as you transition from the empire or from the republic to the empire? Well, it's an, it, that's a really interesting question. So on a couple of different levels, there's a lot for us to think about there. Yeah. The way that the Roman legal system came into being was as a series of precedents. So the way that law worked under the empire, I'm, I'm more familiar with this than I am with the Republic, mm. um, was you had individual legal cases being sent to the imperial court to be decided. And basically all the imperial household was, was a, uh, was a collection of scribes and legal experts who would talk about these things and the emperor would have some say in them and then they would send it back. And this created a, a massive corpus basically of case law to use as, to use as precedents. And sometimes they would think about these things systematically and think about the underlying principles. In other cases, they would just say, well, see this case, this is what was decided there, this is what we're doing, um, rather than thinking it, thinking of it as principles. So to some extent, there are ideas of natural law that play out. In others, it's just case-based precedent. Um, in others, there are practical considerations that come into play. Um, but Roman law is a, as a, as a thing was a diverse body. When it gets codified later on in the 5th and the 6th centuries, it becomes something a little bit different. And our modern use of Roman law is very heavily based on these 5th and 6th century collections because that's what medieval jurists uh, used as the basis for it used as the basis for what we now have for what we use as a basis. So, Patrick, in regards to people like Hitler and Mussolini, I know that they were heavily influenced by the approaches of the empire. Um, what What is it that you understand that they kind of extracted in terms of the empire and how they utilize that to justify their causes uh, during World War II? Well, so Mussolini especially. Okay. Um, Mussolini held up Rome as the pinnacle of Italian greatness um, and used it very explicitly as a justification for for their conquests um, or for their attempted conquests, some of which went better than others. They it was it was very explicitly there as a model for him. And, you know, a lot of the of the restoration work that happened on the city of Rome, excavations, things like that took place there because it was it was a way of justifying his own power. It was a way of justifying Italy's place in the world for him to be able to point to Rome, uh, to the Roman Empire and say very explicitly, this is who we were. This is who we want to be again. It was a, it's a it was a powerful thing that was there for him to draw upon. And I think that we forget that about Rome at its at its peril or at our peril, um, that that it is there as both a positive and a negative model for for us to think about. So in regards, your, your podcast is called The Fall of Rome. In your opinion, what are some of the critical elements and factors that led to the decline of the Roman Empire? Oh man, um, <laughs> there are a fair, there are a fair few of them. Um, I'll pick out a couple of my favorites. Sure. So to me, like I, and I mentioned before, the, the way that I think about the Roman world, not just the Roman empire is as a collection of places that were bound together by, by the movement of goods and people. Um, and I think the big thing to take from the decline and fall of the Roman empire and for us to think about in our own global world is the fragility of that system that we tend to think of this as the norm, that this is how things are supposed to work. But if you take a couple of links out of a supply chain, the supply chain falls apart. Um, and it doesn't necessarily get put back together. I think it's important to remember that these systems are contingent, that they're not, uh, that they are not givens. And so that's a, that's a big thing to take from it. I think that the Rome, the Roman system was tremendously fragile 
to start with, and people at the time did not realize how fragile it was. So I think that that's that's one major parallel. I think a second one is the failure of institutions and decreasing investment in institutions. Uh, that uh, that after a while, people started to feel cut off from government. One of the de- the defining characteristics of the earlier Roman Empire was how invested like local elites in cities that weren't Rome were in the success of the empire because it was a way for them to 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 be involved in political power. They felt like they were a part of this whole. The Rome and the Roman Empire sought consensus. The later Roman Empire got away from that a little bit and people start started feeling less inclined to be connected to what was happening at the center to feel not less Roman but less politically Roman. And so when the barbarians ended up taking over swaths of the Roman Empire People weren't that busted up about it. Was it really that different to be ruled by a barbarian king than it was to be ruled by an emperor? For a lot of people, the answer was no. And that's because they weren't as invested in those institutions and in the kinds of institutions that brought people together. I think that's a parallel that we need to think about and we need to worry about a little bit. That if people do not feel invested, if they don't feel like those institutions belong to them, then they're not going to they're not going to cry that hard uh, when they start to fall apart. Um, I think that's an explicitly American parallel if you want to if you want to look for one. So what can the Americans right now? It seems as if America potentially could be at that phase in which you have an American empire. What can they learn from the Roman Empire so that history doesn't repeat itself? Well, so I think the big one is to not treat those institutions, to not treat your form of government, to not treat your norms and values as givens, to treat them as you have to treat them as things that are constantly under threat and are constantly being renegotiated. So when you have people who are explicitly violating norms of behavior, political norms of behavior, when you have institutions that are visibly not doing their jobs, not doing what they're supposed to do, then you need to then you need to think long and hard about what the consequences are going to be of that, that norms and values tie us together. Um, like the United States does not have to exist. It is not a given that the United States is going to exist forever. Empires fall, uh, places like places split off. Um, and like you cannot accept You cannot treat these things as, as though they are destined to exist. We have to understand them as contingent. We have to understand why they exist and we have to understand the justifications for them to exist. Um, like if Congress isn't doing its job, that's a problem. If it's a broken institution, that's a problem. If the Supreme Court is not functioning the way it's supposed to, that's a problem. Um, these are not things that you can just brush off. Like it, you need to, you need to take seriously the idea that at some point they may stop functioning at all. That's the first step. I don't know how you fix them, but you have to recognize that there is in fact a problem and that there can in fact be real serious long-term consequences that may lead to the end of the United States. So in terms of, as you know, there's many different political and economic schools of thought. In mm-hmm. your observation of Rome, what was the one that seemed to work emo- the most efficiently or at least set up the the Republic or the Pax Roma to be the height that it experienced? Hmm. That's, a, that's an interesting question. I think... Um, and, and, you know, we all bring our, when we look at the past in, in depth and detail, we all bring our own prior assumptions right, to that. Right, right, and right. so, and so for me, um, I think, and maybe it's just because I'm predisposed to this, but mm. I see the state as being a real, like the actual state in terms of being an, an economic driver as being very important. Um, I think that the state created the infrastructure and the basic incentives on which the rest of the economy, a market-based 
economy, a, a, a free market economy in, in most ways, with run with little government interference, the state created the circumstances under which that private economy flourished. Um, that to me is the uh, that to me is the best way of understanding this. That you don't have roads and ports and everything you need to move goods and people from place to place if you don't have the state creating the uh, creating the baseline on which the rest of that piggybacks. But how big does the state need to be in order to oh. provide these kind of incentives and initiatives for um, free thinking individuals? Not as big as it became in the later Roman Empire. Um, I think uh, as long as as long as you have a baseline, the rest of it will build. The rest of it would build on top of it. The the state, the the bureaucracy of the later Roman Empire became ever. It became increasingly authoritarian. Its officials became increasingly powerful because they were officials. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that like if you're looking for an overarching state uh, to blame for a lot of bad things, the later Roman empire provides good examples of that. Um, it's easy to romanticize the earlier empire and the Republic. Right. Um, th- they had, a th- they had their problems too, but um, it's not hard to, vi- to, uh, to make villains out of later Roman bureaucrats because they were less invested in what was happening in the communities that they were working in. Um, you know, they held their positions by virtue of an Imperial court, not because they were the most important people in their local communities who were the ones that the court wanted to deal with. Like it's a very basic shift, a very basic change. If you want to, you can make that into an argument against cosmopolitan elites and one in favor of local elites, which is again, a a modern parallel to think about that we increasingly have a global cosmopolitan elite that is less and less invested in any individual, any one individual place there are some dangers associated with that because they're increasingly disconnected. And that's that's something you could draw from the later Roman Empire if you wanted to as well. Right. So when I look at periods of time such as like 500 AD and I look at how the government, the Roman government had implemented a lot of taxes, there was a lot of inflation, regulation, that effectively helped also demolish the economy and kind of set the 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 catalyst for the dark ages yeah there to, to some extent yeah so so especially in the in the fourth century the taxation became heavier mm-hmm. in large part because you still you needed a lot of soldiers at, at the end of the day all of this comes back to the military mm-hmm. um the roman the roman army was the single biggest economic driver because again it had to be it had to be fed and it had to be paid um and everything else like you why do you need roads you need roads so soldiers can get from place to place and so what feeds the soldiers can get from place to place um everything else kind of builds off, off that baseline thing in the later Roman Empire, you still needed tons of soldiers, but the population as a whole had declined. Mm-hmm. So to pay for all of that, you needed to raise taxes. You needed more revenue. You needed to squeeze more revenue from fewer and fewer people. And so to that extent, like the rise of an increasingly bureaucratic state makes rational sense. If you've got to squeeze harder, then you need more people to do the squeezing, you know? Um, so so it's important not to separate that development from the context in which it occurs. But yeah, the long, like, like the, the second and third order consequences of building that bureaucracy were terrible. Like they were, they were really bad, especially in the West, which was less wealthy and less urban to start with. Like when you squeeze and squeeze and squeeze and squeeze, it makes people less invested and care less in your, in in your central state. So Patrick, you've been exploring a lot about uh, the Roman empire do you have any final like thoughts or retrospective insight towards all of this um, as we sign off for the audience? 
Yeah, I think that in general, the past provides us with a lot of parallels to think through. Even if there, even if you can't draw direct connections and say this is exactly like that, uh, then but it, it gives you a lot of different scenarios to think with, and it forces you to think harder about your own world um, because. Things do not have to be as they are. The world is not a series of givens. Um, it's a series of contingencies. And so I think that the past gives us a lot of ways to think about ways in which our world could be different, why it is the way it is. And it just it forces us to think harder about that. I would say that would be my big takeaway. Thank you, Patrick. And where can people um, hear your podcast? So you can find my podcast, The Fall of Rome, on iTunes. You can find it on Stitcher. Uh, you can find it on SoundCloud. You can find me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman if you ever want to talk about any of these things. Um, yeah, just uh, just hit me up. I'm always happy to talk about this stuff. And thank you again for having me on. This has been a great conversation. Thank you, Patrick. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com. 